Well, now you can. <laughs> How is everybody? I am good. As you can tell, I'm flying solo. We're giving Steve a little break tonight, much deserved. He's had like two weddings and a few, it's a, like a movie, two weddings and a funeral. Uh, so he's, he's been after it quite a bit. So I'm supposed to do one thing above all things, and that's announced next Wednesday. I think we have a slide. We're going to try something a little different for us, but I hope, I hope God blesses it. We complain a lot about what's happening, of everybody being sick and everything being not the way we wish it would be. We want something else. So at some point, you have to stop complaining and do something about it. It's not like God's not willing to help. So we're going to try to have a, a prayer service, a healing service, a hope service. Let me say, not a crazy service. Um, we're not going to do nut things, but really just biblically try to... Well, you know what I'm talking about. I mean... <laughs> So Steve and I were like, how do you promote this without coming across as, like, I got the snakes. And, um, <laughs> we're, we're not doing that. I wanted to shoot that commercial where he's talking and I'm holding snakes. He wouldn't go for it at all. But, <laughs> yeah. So really, um, come join us. Or if you know of somebody that's just kind of overwhelmed like we all are, we complain on Facebook, we complain to our friends, and, uh, but let's, let's pray, let's, let's ask for some help. So we, we're not gonna take all night, but we will, we'll really focus on that. So we'll have music, we're gonna uh, put some stuff at the cross, we're gonna have some flowers and uh, try to do some different things. So this time next week, come join us, it'll be memorable. Yes, ma'am. We are having dinner. We are having dinner, yeah. Everything else will be the same as we normally do, all the kids programming, um, all the, the good stuff. I have a little surprise for you at the end. Uh, that'll be a little bit different, but um, I won't say any more, though. So. Yeah, I think you really, really like this one. So let's take a look at chapter 19. This is one of the joys, the blessings, the treasures of Ezekiel. If you're not feeling this study at this point, you're not trying. This is hard, isn't it? It's very hard. This is like climbing a mountain, taking every ounce of faith muscle you have, and there's no oxygen. There's no break. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Give me a break. Even studying it myself, I'm thinking, can we just skip ahead? This is depressing. God's so angry, and it just goes on and on and on. Part of that is we want to avoid pain at just about any cost, and that's a really good way to miss God. A lot of times the pain we want to avoid is God, and that's, that's a whole other Bible study. But tonight is not that. Tonight is an unbelievable beauty in a place you never expected it. This is so different from what we normally study in scripture, it excites me, and it makes me nervous that I'm not gonna be able to present it well enough, but we'll try. This is not typical, it, this writing. It, we call it a funerary song, but it's a lot more than that. I think it's got to be written by Ezekiel. 
this wasn't dictated by God, I don't believe, he would have probably said, and the Lord, we know the standard formula, son of man, write these words to my people. He doesn't do that here. He's going to write two little short stories, and probably the best way you can take these is as a parable or maybe a riddle. Hebrew literary experts far greater than me struggle to define exactly what this is. In my opinion, it's very close to what the Egyptians do, and they call it a cryptograph, which is a series of statements or questions that when you answer them, the answer is what you're supposed to pay attention to. So the story is told almost by second degree. So they'll make a statement, you'll react to the statement, and it's that reaction that they want. So this is very different than God just telling us a story. It is incredibly rewarding if you can get through it. And I know you guys, you'll, you'll do better. Because there's the version I'm going to give you, and then I think the version God wants you to get. This is heavily involved in the rabbinic movement. This is like one of the original kernels of it. And I think that's very, very important for us as Christians to pay attention to. Because when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't do it as a great uh, general. He doesn't do it as a great prophet. He doesn't do it as a priest. He doesn't do it as a philosopher, social reformer, any of that. He is preferred mode is of a rabbi, as a teacher. That process had developed over centuries that's beginning here. Remember, when Jesus had interactions with people, would he just give them a straight answer? No. no. You don't have to study him very long before he, you see him doing this rabbinic thing. You're going to, if you ask me a question, I'll probably ask you a question, right? Because what he wants you to do is find out the answer for yourself. A rabbi wins when you say the answer from your own words. It's not him just telling you, it's you figuring out, you discovering that. These two funeral songs are doing that to you. They want you to figure this out. And when you get it, you'll know something about yourself, a lot about God, and certainly a lot about the time of Ezekiel. So this is great, but it's a Rubik's Cube. I think when I was a kid, I had a Rubik's Cube for about 10 minutes and I threw it out the window, right? I can't stand this thing. Um, we'll, we'll do our best to really enjoy this. So we'll need some help. Let me pray. <laughs> Father our God, we thank you for this treasure. So often we look at your word as something we've got to get through for the day. Something we've got to wrestle information from. But here you give us something to enjoy, something to bless us. So we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and let the real depth of your feeling, your love, flow through these words, that we might see what happened and see also what will happen. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. Well, let's start off. I don't know how to do this in a Bible translation, but if I ever figure it out, I'm going to make a fortune. In our translations today, you really can't tell when the language changes. And a lot of the time, 
that's a place where Scripture is drawing particular attention. The wording, the word choices, shift almost to a Shakespearean level. I would almost say higher than Shakespeare. We have seven different words for lion that are going to show up. I didn't know there were seven different words for lion in Hebrew. I barely know two in English. You know, it's, it, it's amazing the tonal shift, but you can't get that out of translations. So if, if you can make a note to yourself, I know sometimes they put italics or they try to put in, in poetry font setting. Does yours do that? Is, is there any text offset from what? Yeah. Usually they try to highlight poetry, but this is a lot more than poetry, but it has more that feel. So 19 verse 1. Sing this funeral song for the princes of Israel. I would circle that and underline it. Uh, we'll have to come back to it. It's, it's a little strange, uh, just in its formation. He probably should say, Malek, kings of Israel. And it's jarring that he says princes. It could be an insult. And that's sort of how it initially reads. And this is what I mean. We, we have to work our way through not just what he's saying, but how he's saying it, and then the response that it has from us. So mark that. It's one of the questions we're supposed to answer. Who are these princes? Is he talking about kings? Is he talking about aristocracy? Is he talking some prophecy? This is not really prophecy, by the way. It's, it's a reflection on what happened. And then look at verse 2. What is your mother? What? <laughs> now, does that sound weird? Yeah. Yes. And it sounds even weirder in Hebrew. You would maybe say, who is your mother? But there's never this other recorded incidence of what is your mother? Uh, as if she's not quite human or, or what? So this is the puzzle beginning to turn. Who are the princes? What are you talking about? And why are you worried about my mother? Uh, who, who is she? Who, who is the mother here? And so a lot of our typical parable skills, is this Jesus? No, <laughs> this isn't Jesus. Is this God? Well, we don't know. Um, and then the shocking kind of answer, what is your mother? A lioness among lions. What? This isn't getting any better. Uh, you're talking about princes and suddenly now my mother and then my mother's a lioness? So without their cultural baggage, let's, let's think about this for a minute. <clears throat> your mother's a lion. Is your mother a lion? <laughs> Some mothers are lions. <laughs> I know your mom. She is a lion. <laughs> what, what is that? Is that good? Is that bad? Is that nothing? What do you think? It's bad? If your lions, your mother is vicious and attacks and... So we got that. Aren't lions supposed to be noble? Yeah? Protector? 
Are these things normally ascribed to mothers in the Bible? Maybe they should be more, but it's not normally where they go. But again, this is, this is a whole different kind of thing we're dealing with here. What else are lions? They're what? Yeah, they're, they're enemies. The, the roaring sound of a lion is one of the consistent sounds of evil in the Old Testament. That Just that expression, roar of the lions, is, is upsetting. It's really kind of a cipher for evil of humanity. So all this seems very nebulous. Maybe they're saying mama is, is noble. Next Mother's Day, we probably should buy our moms lions. Mom, you are a lion to me. Uh, It's a a little odd. But maybe it's evil? I mean, mom's supposed to be loving and maybe cuddly and and, and nurturing. But they, they really want us to think lion. She lay down among the young lions and reared her cubs. So I hope you could hear the poetry in that. Again, this is not just, in the year King Uzziah died, this happened. This is refined speech. This is Shakespeare. This is poetry. This is an intense loaded here. They are using all sorts of of very archaic and poetic expressions for this mother. She exists amongst the lions. Presumably, they are her cubs, and, and she's raising them. So... Maybe another clue as to who the lion is, but what's the question we're supposed to figure out? Yeah, what is the mother? And what does the mother have to do with the princess? So continuing on, we get a little more lion. She raised one of her cubs to become a strong young lion. And again, they're doing a terrible job in English. These are all different words that they're using for lion. It's mind-boggling. He learned to hunt and devour prey, and he became a man-eater. All right. So I was almost at a stage where I was thinking the lion was good. This is Lion King, right? Mama lion is raising her little baby, and he grew up to be a what? Man-eater. What kind of mama is raising him to kill people? So again, where did we just go? And, and this is why I, I love our Bible study. Because if you, I think we read this on our own, you would read this and just go, what in God's name are we talking about? This is some weird prophecy, I'm moving on. But it's, it's this unique kind of rabbinic thing they're doing. They want you to, to stop for a minute, stumble over this. All right, what is mother... What are we talking about all these lions for? This is one of the pieces I think I have to supply. What is one of the emblems of the nation of Israel? What do they pride themselves to be? This is one of the titles of Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah. And so there is a very old series of prophecies, and these are foundational that the language they used for the lions is reflecting. So what Ezekiel did, if you can imagine, he shifted to an older form of Hebrew, and that's where the poetry element was coming. That's why it sounded Shakespearean, because it's coming from an earlier period in time. 
And let me show it to you. It's in Genesis 49. And if your Sunday school ever needs something that needs studying, it's the very end of Genesis. It's prophecies that come out of the blessings of the sons of Jacob. And man, there is a lot, a lot in these uh, things that happen thousands of years later. Uh, But we're just going to pick one tonight. Um, This is Genesis 49. Let me make sure. Yeah, I was trying to... Yeah, we'll begin there. Okay. Judah. So this is the original man named Judah. This is the man whose name is given to the tribe. So the founder, it's sort of the Adam of the whole tribe that leads to Jesus. So this is the tribe of David, and this is the tribe of of Jesus. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All your relatives will bow before you. So again, very archaic language. What is Judah most known for in the book of Genesis? This is where we separate the serious Bible study people. There's one event that's very memorable. This is what Judah was doing while Joseph was in Egypt. The Bible intersperses these two stories. It's very hard to forget once you know it. Do you remember? What did he do? Yes. Can you say a little louder? (laughs) Yes. He went to get a prostitute. Because that's what all biblical patriarchs go and do. This was part of this Canaanite tradition that there's prostitutes out, you're walking home from work, you're like, yeah, sure, why not? To his internal embarrassment, it turned out to be his daughter-in-law. And he got her pregnant. So again, this is the George Washington of the tribe of Judah. I don't know about you, but I would have changed the name of the tribe like 10 minutes later. Here, Joseph is becoming the leader of Egypt, you know, so faithful and wonderful. And the schmuck we got is getting a girl pregnant that's his daughter-in-law. And there's worse stuff to the story. But, so the girl is being tried. And she's facing capital punishment for her, her Canaanite activity, but also turning up pregnant when she was supposed to be a widow. He stands in front of the tribes of Israel and says, it's not her fault. I did this. Now that was incredibly brave. It was the right thing to do in a very, very hard situation. Do you think that people ever forgot this story? No, it's not in it up in scripture. And Judah's like, please, for the love of God, don't tell me the story again. I know, okay? Can you hear his brothers? Hey, how did you? Shut up, shut up, shut up. So when they're pronouncing these prophecies of what's going to come in the future, we don't expect great things from Judah. <laughs> we really don't. If they had said, hey, guess what? The Messiah is going to come from Judah's family. 
<laughs> really? Because usually Judah's family doesn't know who the father is. So anyway, it's going to be a great time. Uh, so there was a shock, right? You will, your brothers will praise you. That's a, that's a play on words. Judah means praise. So again, this incredible best kind of Hebrew that we have. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. What does that sound like? A lion. It's this cat uh, image. Again, this is not what we expect from old daddy Judah. Uh, He may be grasping at things, but it's not his enemies. All your relatives will bow before you. This is a strange, strange prophecy. It's almost like the fortune teller, and there's not a fortune teller, it's God, but doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, part of this we know, right? Today, of the surviving tribes of Israel, who's still left? Judah, the tribe of Judah. That's why we call them Jews from Judah. There's no tribe of Manasseh left. There's no tribe of Ephraim. There were bigger, more powerful, more influential tribes, and they're gone. Judah has what is survived Judah is also the line in which the Messiah comes. And so there is this sense that we hear echoed later on, um, all your relatives will bow, every knee will bow before the one from your tribe. Uh, Continuing on, Judah, my son, is a young lion. And this is Ari. If you ever meet a a Jew, an Israel, Israeli, uh, an Ari, it's a lion. So this is the language that Ezekiel is capturing. Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. So I guarantee Judah's brothers were rolling on the ground at this point. Are you kidding me? Mr. Lucky Date Tinder Man here that only picks up relatives on the way home from work is hardly a lion that has pounced and got his prey. This is laughable. But this becomes the aspiration of Judah, that they want to be this noble lion, that they want to be more. It's giving us this insight that what God intended for Judah was the lion of Judah. That this ability to defeat your enemies, have this earth-shadowing, changing kind of role is what was intended. So this is sort of the background that's floating there. It doesn't answer the questions for us because we're still stuck with, what is my mother? This is not an easy, oh, it's God and it's Jesus. This is not that kind of thing. But we're getting one step, step closer. If we go back to the scripture, we need to follow this exchange kind of closely here. No, I'm sorry. Can we stay in the Genesis? Or I can read it from... Judah, my son, is a young lion that finishes eating his prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. So there's this question, uh, is he like a lioness? Uh, or, or who would possibly interfere with this lion with its prey? Are, are you that foolish that there's this almost intimidating factor? Uh, let's go on to the next verse, or is that 
where I stopped. Yeah, so let me, let me do verse 10. The scepter, so the ability to rule, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will obey. All right, who is that? That really is Jesus. So in the pages of Genesis, you have the first concrete prophecy of the Messiah. That God is saying, like, I'm giving you the helicopter view here, long way down the road. I'm telling you, from this tribe of this man that you think is an idiot, I see something of humanity that I want to preserve. The strength of a man who makes a mistake, a humiliating mistake, but is willing to stand up and do the right thing, even though he will face ridicule from now to the end of time. Because every time, I promise you, some little kid reads a story and comes ask me, Pastor Kurt, what does this mean? I think, I hate you, Judah. I hate you. Then we got to go through this story again. But he did the right thing. God is honoring that. And so we get this, this dream that one will come from the line of Judah, that the scepter will not depart. The ruler's staff will pass to the descendants until the coming of the one whom it belongs. And it's left just as mysterious in Hebrew. Uh, who is the one? They don't know. They don't know if it's a king, if it's a messiah. They don't know who it is. It's just there's one coming from Judah that will always rule. Totally out of left field. They never expected this from the tribe of Judah. Judah's not the oldest. He's not the firstborn. He's not Joseph, who is the most righteous, uh, who's doing all this great work in Egypt. He's just a father who made a horrible choice. The Jews read this for centuries, and they do get this idea and David goes to town with it. David, well, there was be a promise to him that there will always be one of his descendants on the throne of Judah. So let me stop here. Are we okay? Have you figured it out yet? <laughs> well, let's, let's keep working. So we have this sense that the lion is supposed to be, we hope, a descendant of the line of Judah to be a king, to be in charge, to be a ruler until this ultimate one comes. But when we read about this lion that was raised by the lioness, he turned out to be a man-eater. Is that good? Is that bad? It's bad. Even in sort of a parable about lions, it's not good. God is never really fond of eating people. It's actually one of the commands he gave, hey, don't, eat, don't eat each other, it's gross. Uh, don't, don't eat blood, don't do it. Uh, verse four, then the other nations heard about him and he was trapped in their pit and they led him away with hooks to the land of Egypt. So what happened to our lion? They got a little too big for his britches. And so he got caught. 
This is actually great sport in the ancient world. Uh, the Babylonians loved to do it. The Assyrians were probably the best at it. Even the Egyptians get into it. They, there's plans that survive. They dig these pits and have all sorts of traps, and they get the lion down in there. They don't want to kill the lion because they want to keep it. The kings would show off their lions. They wouldn't stuff them and put them in their houses. They'd keep them alive and, and keep them as pets. But it's really good and fun to capture a lion in a pit, right? How do you get the lion out? Very carefully. Bear, bear carefully. There's no tranquilizers in the ancient world, right? So, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Uh, it's not going to work. The lion is going to be really upset. So, Ezekiel told us how they got the lion out. How did they do it? With hooks. That's horrible. That's probably horrible to do and horrible for the lion. So again, what is the point of the story? With this question, the thing about the princes, okay, we got the lion, maybe we got some cultural background to the lion, mama's raising the lion, and it just, it goes bad. It, it just barely, he's there, you know, I guess he goes out and eats one person and then gets sold to Egypt. Now, isn't that the way of being a Jew? I think they would say, this always happens to us. Uh, just somebody manages to get somewhere and then they fall in a pit and they get hauled off into slavery into Egypt. Uh, that's, that's our story. So no answers given to us at this point. We continue on in verse 5. When the mother lion saw that all her hopes for him were gone, she took another of her cubs and taught him to be a strong lion. So we're back at it. Mama picks the second best cub she has, and she raises him to be a strong lion. He prowled among the other lions and became a leader among them. Second time... Seems like it's going better. He learned to catch and devour prey. And he too became a man-eater. Well, dang it. Mama, you're not doing something right. Um, stop <clears throat> telling about the other, other white meat, right? Just, just eat the pigs. It's not people. What does your verse 7 say? Does anybody have anything other than demolish fortresses? He did what? He knew widows. This is probably the greatest example of malpractice in terms of translations I've seen in a long, long time. Tom's is actually right. Which, what is your translation? Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's the notes. So... The word actually says uh, that he conquers the widows, which sounds really, really bad. So they changed the word. There's a couple of letters between that and to attack uh, like a fortress. The second half, and Hebrew usually has poetry. It, well, couplets in poetry. So you'll say something and then you say it again, but you say it differently. So based on the couplet theory, they're trying to say, uh, you, you should change it from widows to, to fortresses. I don't think that's right. We, suddenly we dropped our lion metaphor and we're, we're taking cities. Lions don't really take cities. But it does seem like it's in the realm of he's establishing his dominance. 
So he comes into leadership of the pride, and I understand this is what lions do. If there are other female lions in the pride, the new lion takes over and you know, he's the daddy now. So that probably is what the original translation was. But now we get watered down. He demolishes fortresses in nearby nations and destroys their towns and cities. Okay. Their farms were desolate and their crops were destroyed. Everyone in the land trembled in fear when they heard him roar. So is this a good lion? Is this a bad lion? Is he worse or better? Seems worse. He seems more capable as a lion that he's taken charge. He's got his own little pride now. But this, this sense that he's roaring, that's, that's verbatim a sign of evil, a sign of human violence. Predictably, then the armies of the nations or the armies of the Gentiles attacked him, surrounded him from every direction. They spread their net out for him and captured him in their pit. So again, with a pit. Verse 9, with hooks, they dragged him into a cage and brought him before the king of Babylon. They held him in captivity so his voice could never again be heard on the mountain of Israel, the mountains of Israel. And that's it. We get really spoiled when God comes along and says, all right, let me explain it to you. And that's what we're desperate for. But this is what I mean about the transition into the rabbinic stuff. They won't give you the answer. Sometimes Jesus does, but most of the time they want you to figure it out. Or Jesus wanted the disciples to try to figure it out before he would explain it. So what in the world did we just read? There are a few other of these in Scripture. Um, they're always interesting to look at. And the only way I've ever been able to sort of piece them is to follow the questions. So we've got the basic story. It's not a complicated story. A lioness has two cubs. One grows up, goes to Egypt. Well, eats man, gets in trouble, goes to Egypt. Second one does a little better, uh, messes up, uh, goes to Babylon. So any idea what we're talking about yet? Say more about that. No, no, keep, keep going. I mean, it's interesting. This, Tom is doing exactly what we're supposed to do with this text. It's this conversation that's going to give us what we're supposed to know. Knowing the story about the lions, not that important. The questions that come about figuring out the lion story is what's important. That's why this is here. So, Israel, or maybe God, is the lioness. And... First, first the the cub fails and is, is sent to, to Egypt, and then God redeems that line, brings it back, and the second line doesn't do much better until it ends up all the way in back. Israel was always mother Israel. <laughs> yes, yes. There, there's definitely that uh, female quality of, of nurturing. <laughs> is it fair to make God this bad of a parent? I, <laughs> And what did these lions do? They were man-eaters. 
so Tom's actually doing a good job here, a really good job. If the lioness is God, then what is your mother? See why I throw Rubik's Cubes out? <laughs> All right, let me throw a little background that I think, think helps this. This is the overall political situation that was going on in Ezekiel's life. This is part of the answer. This is not all the answer. There's a spiritual level to what we're doing that I don't want to rob you of. I'm not trying to frustrate you, but I want you to kind of discover it yourself. But let me try this. So I need to go to the outline of King Josiah's sons. Hopefully you remember King Josiah. He is, next to Hezekiah, one of the best kings in all of Judah's history. The guy was just extraordinary. He is who people think David was. David was a mixed bag, by all means. Josiah was really, really extraordinary. There was this belief, and you still kind of feel it in Scripture, that maybe Josiah was, in fact, a Messiah. And he wasn't, but he did such extraordinarily good things. His father uh, had actually burned babies alive. And it had caused this mass just fall of the morality of Israel. And so Josiah comes to the throne, and he's a child. And he's being manipulated. He's having a horrible time. But he stays with God. He is faithful. He gets the nation back on even keel. He stops that stuff. He tears it all down. It's a horrible struggle he has to go through. His grandmother is still heavily involved in this ball worship. He has to go arrest his grandmother. It's a scene she's screaming. I mean, it's horrible, but he stays on the right course. He fixes the economy. He fixes the army. He gets Judah back on its feet. And there is this real sense that they've got a future, that God is somehow through him going to make it work. All of that changes in a split second. And if there's one moment in history that I could go back and just change one second, I think this would be it. Now, God wanted this to happen, so it would be a mistake on my part. But there, so Judah has just gotten its house in order. The Assyrian Empire is collapsing, and in its place are rising the Babylonians. The Babylonians have been traumatized like the rest of the world, and they've become more the monster than the monster. So in destroying the Assyrians, and remember the Assyrians are the ones that built stacks of human skulls, skinned bodies, and put them all around the city. The first picture we actually have of an ancient Israelite is an Assyrian skinning him. Uh, these are horrible people. So the Babylonians have just about wiped them out. The Egyptians are sitting away in Egypt. And they hate the Assyrians too, but they know what the Babylonians are capable of. So they decide, sort of in this crazy moment, that they're going to intervene and try to help the Assyrians. Their reasoning was, if the Assyrians are weakened and we prop them up, they can be a buffer between us and the Babylonians. We want a weak Babylon and a weak Assyria. This is the very beginning of the time in which the Egyptians were recruiting Greek mercenaries. 
The Egyptians had their own army, but they had discovered that the Greeks, and these are early Greeks, these are Ionians and Carians, so they're more from Turkey, but they're Greeks. They are incredible fighters. This is like beginning of 300, if you remember the movie, right? The beginning of Sparta and all that. So the Egyptians have quite an army at this point, but they usually won't risk it. They decide this is the time. So what they do is start a world war. They march their army north to meet up with what was left of the Assyrian army. They're going to ally and try to defeat the Babylonians. I cannot tell you how much world history turned on this battle. The Egyptians have to march through what country to get there? Israel, or in this case, Judah. This is a huge Egyptian army. It's commanded by uh, a pharaoh named Necho. He's actually the son of Samtek, who was really a brilliant, brilliant Egyptian pharaoh. He had fixed Egypt too. And this exchange is really, really strange. The Egyptians are marching north, and suddenly the Jewish army that Josiah has put together is standing in their way. And the Egyptians are shocked. And the scriptures actually record to us in Chronicles The Pharaoh says, Judah, we have nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with you. Go away. We don't want you. We don't want to fight you. In fact, the Pharaoh says, God did not send me to fight you. This is not right. Get out of the way. His whole life, Josiah has been incredibly righteous, has done the right thing. The scripture is careful not to say either way. God didn't tell Josiah to go or God didn't tell Josiah not to go. He just, he shows up. We don't know why. Judah has no, this is no reason to be in this fight. This is a fight amongst giants. Judah just needs to get out of the way. They're gonna get stomped by the giants. And that's what the Egyptians tell them. Look, we've got a much bigger battle. We gotta go all the way to Syria. We don't have time to mess with you. And Josiah will not move. And so one of the saddest moments in history, the Egyptians say, well, we don't want to fight you, but get out of the way. And so they kill them. Josiah is killed. And the whole nation is just in shock. This was our best king, maybe ever. And he just dies. It, 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 it crushed them. I mean, this was JFK kind of moment. Uh, this is... And in a sense, they never recover from it. And it was useless. There was no point for this battle. It didn't make a bit of difference. He couldn't have stopped the Egyptians in a million years. So they just blow over him. And again, it's probably an army of several tens of thousands versus maybe two or 3,000. I mean, just slaughter them and move on. And then history takes its course. The Assyrians and the Egyptians are defeated by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Have you heard of him? He's going to be the plague on the rest of the world. So as the Egyptians are leaving, they say, um, we'll be back, you idiots. So when Josiah dies, he has three sons. Jehoaz is not the oldest, but he seems to be the most popular. So he, and it's a little strange, family dynamics, but Judean court politics usually are, he comes to the throne. The Egyptian army goes and has their battle to the north. 
the Egyptians are always fearful of losing their army in its entirety because they paid for it. And uh, they, they don't want to lose all their farmers, their citizens. So the Egyptians fight, but maybe they don't fight as hard as they do. They didn't fight to the last man. They retreat. So they have a large army when they come back south. And their primary goal is to secure the border in Egypt. So they come through Judah, and King or Pharaoh Necho says, yeah, there's no way I'm going to leave on the throne the son of the man I just killed. So you're coming with me. So lock him up. We're taking him back to Egypt. I'll pick another one of the sons. So he actually picked the oldest son, who's actually, his name was Eliahim, but he changes his name to Jehoiakim. And he's, the Egyptians say, you will be the king of Judah. Uh, you are our man. Don't ever doubt it. If you give me crap, I'm going to come back up here and we'll discuss it again. So are we clear? Yes, yes, yes. Have a good, good trip, sir. <laughs> uh, so away we went. So Jehoiakim will stay on the throne for 11 years. Uh, and it's, it's a horrible 11 years. They try to stay loyal to the Egyptians, but the Babylonians are all over the place. And the Babylonians are burning down cities and killing people. And every time they asked the Egyptians to send military aid, the Egyptians said, yeah, we'll get right on that. By the way, how many Babylonians did you kill? Well, that's not very many. Go, go try, kill some more. So he goes back and forth. He eventually will change sides. And then he figures out that being an ally of a Babylonian is actually worse than being an enemy. And so he changes sides again. Eventually, the Babylonians will come in and take him out. And they put uh, his son, Jehoiachin, on the throne. So the Egyptians think, well, that's not going to work. So when the Babylonians leave, the Egyptians come back. And poor Jehoiachin, who's been reigning for three months, gets pulled out. And the Egyptians were like, well, we don't have any more sons of Jehoiakim, so we'll pick the last son of Josiah, and we're going to put him on the throne, which is Zedekiah. This is the last king of Judah. We've talked about him. His sons are killed before his eyes, and he's blinded. He will, again, waver back and forth, try to be an ally to the Egyptians, try to appease the Babylonians. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar returns and just destroys everything. And he hauls Zedekiah off to Babylon, where he will die. So, Jehoaz uh, dies in Egypt. Zedekiah dies in Babylon. This is probably the answer for why we were talking about the princes of Israel should have been kings. But as I talked about their father and then talked about what they accomplished in life, were they anything like their father? When we read those prophecies about Judah, that they would rule, the scepter would never be taken from their hands, does this sound like that? Potential is such a volatile substance. When you're a kid, they tell you, oh, you got such potential. What happens if you don't utilize that potential? 
something potential sours and it turns into something horrible. The people had such hope and faith in this line of David. From the time of Exodus, or, or from the time of Genesis, that they would be the lions of Judah. They would be the people that God had spoken of so highly. And in the end, the sons of Josiah are just a collection of losers. Part of that is the politics that they find themselves in. Sure, it's, they're stuck between Babylon and Egypt, and that's a horrible place to be. Basically, you're Poland between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. You don't have a lot of good choices. But leaving all that aside, they were terrible. At a time in which their country desperately needed leadership, a time in which their nation needed somebody to strive, they preyed on their own people. In order to one point raise money to give to the Egyptians, Jehoiakim killed his own people. When they couldn't pay the taxes, that you had to pay to be an ally of the Egyptians who don't actually send help to us, who are just using us to be buffers between us and their country. Uh, that's pretty bad. At another point, they go into the temple and they take out the gold that's in the temple, stuff that belongs to God. And they will give it. One time they give it to the Babylonians, another time they give it to the Egyptians. So again, this just smacks of desperation. So I think this is one level of unlocking this funeral song that Ezekiel is writing here. He is reflecting on what should have been what he hoped and dreamed were saviors for his country. First, we had the young lion. Mama was raising him. We thought he was the man. He made, made it for three months. It was really short and brutal. Egyptians came hauled him off, worse than his dad. He died like an animal. Then we had another one. He reigned 11 years, and we thought maybe he could do it. But the only person he was vicious with was his own people. He didn't fight the Babylonians. He didn't fight the Egyptians. They just beat up and prey on us. I don't know, have you ever, have you ever wanted somebody to be so much more and they're just not. It just breaks you. So all this leads us back to what is my mother? I think we're right that God was the lioness. But the thing they really want us to focus on all of this strange stuff is what kind of God have you presented to people? What are people going to think of the lioness? They're going to think she's terrible. She raises man-eaters. She raises incompetent idiot kings that can't do the right thing. She's raised people that don't even worship her, in a sense. She's raised people that turn to other gods, kill their babies, prey on their own people. What have you presented to other people is your mother. What was Israel's job from day one? Right. We'll, we'll see it in the, the corollary. He talks about the vine, which is the next. 
And this vine is this classic image. You're not to be a great tree. You're not going to be like other nations. But what you are going to do is be this vine that brings life, brings fruit, brings my teaching, the teaching of truth, the teaching of Torah, the teaching of Messiah to the nations around you. But you've not done that. You have been lions, monsters, creatures that are captured because they roar evil. And now people think that your God, your mother, your lioness that raised you is a monster too. Can you begin to feel how very deep we're getting here? Part of what God is revealing to us, I think, is his frustration that he comes across as an angry lioness in all this, doesn't he? He's mad, he's roaring. And part of that is because what people have done in his name. He didn't send out a bunch of Bibles in the beginning. He didn't perform miracles for the whole world. What he did was take one family and stay with them, transform them into a nation, give them every kind of blessing they could imagine. And they have taught people that their God is a monster. Do we ever do that? What do you actually say about God to other people? Not in a churchy way. Oh, let me say you, God is so good. But when you're stressed, when you're having economic problems, when there's problems with the kids, what do you actually teach people that you believe about God? This is the power of this rabbinic thing, this, this hard little place that we go to with lions. It's not about lions. It's about what do we teach people our mother is. So let me stop. How do we feel? <laughs> do you love it or you hate it? <laughs> the vine will help us a great deal because it's a little simpler language. It's the same kind of thing. Um, but... This, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Twice to mention nations, and obviously nations is about the Gentiles. Right, right. So it's it's twice saying Gentiles overcame also. Right. The the Gentiles conquered, and, and the Gentiles hooked and tore at our nation it's it, it, when when after you explain it it's so graphic what the gentiles did then and and please we can't ever underscore how much pain and victimhood and i don't say that in a modern kind of politically correct way but but real victimhood the the jews have been abused throughout history like nobody's business they really really have so you're getting some of that pain here but also hear the way Ezekiel described this. Why, in this case, did the nations, the, the Gentiles, the Goyim, attack the lions? Because they were man-eaters, because they were roaring, because they were evil. God's saying, you want to blame this all on them, but that the truth of the matter is you are rotten to the core. All you have taught people is that you are evil and that God is evil. And we've done this completely backwards. 
So they think I'm a lioness who sends her cubs out to die. Uh, it's, it's like a, uh, a piece of hard candy that you chew on and you chew on and you want to break, but you'll probably break with your teeth. I mean, this is, I, I hope, a tool for to go to a spiritual place. If God tonight wrote a little animal parable about you, what kind of animal have you taught people you are? What have you done with your raising, so to speak? Have you been a noble lion or have you been a man-eater? Have you gotten yourselves into horrible messes where God doesn't pull you out of the pit because you don't have time for that? Your enemies, or you try to pull yourself out, or your enemies pull you out with hooks. What kind of story of your life would this be? And I hope that keeps us up at night in a good way. Don't worry, we'll get back to prophetic gloom and doom really, really quick. Uh, this was just a brief interlude of a very uh, different kind of writing uh, I love. Uh, I'm glad there's not too much of it, or I think all of our heads would explode. But it's, it's a different exercise, isn't it? Than just, Jesus went down to the river and talked some people. Okay, we got that. But All right, well... I don't know if I've helped or confused, but I've, I've done my best to show you the reality of what we just read. Any last questions? No, she didn't. The sons taught people that the lioness was mean, and that's what God is, is focusing on. The stories that the sons lived out taught everybody that the parents were bad, that mama was bad. So that's why he started with, what is your mother? Is she a monster? Is she a lioness? Is that what you really want people to think of me? So, all right. Well, please remember us next week. We'll try a prayer service. Won't be weird, I promise. No lions whatsoever. Uh, we'll, uh... no sheep. Nope, nope, sheep either. All right, let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you expect us to think sometimes. You want us to push beyond just being animals that walk and talk, that we have to reflect on our choices. We have to reflect on our life. We have to treat your word more than just an instruction manual of devotion. You expect us to stop and apply this in our own life. To have those moments when we look at what we have done. What have we done in your name? That which you have put us in charge of, how have we done? Have we scrambled in moments of desperation just to get through abandoning all that you've given us, all that you've taught us? With our children, with our neighbors, with our family, do they love you because we love you? Do they know your goodness because of our goodness? Father, we, we say these words and we want to get up and run from here and go make phone calls and talk to people again. 
I say in all honesty, Lord, it's probably not a good idea for you to base your reputation.